0: Welcome to the Sunday School Lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad that you're with us this morning. Today, we're going to be looking at the resurrection of Lazarus. And the text we're using is the Gospel of John, chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 44. The theme of today's lesson, that Christ wants to reveal His glory in us through our sufferings, and our trials. Before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word, uh, to to get from your word, Lord, whatever it is that you have for us. And we ask that your spirit would bless this time that we have together in your name. Amen. Uh, in today's lesson, We start out with Jesus spending considerable time in Jerusalem. He's teaching in the temple. He's trying to let the people know who he is. And this had brought him a lot of opposition from the religious leaders. In fact, they had sent guards to arrest Jesus, but this hadn't worked out. It had also brought him opposition from the crowd. Uh, On at least one occasion, the crowd was trying to stone Jesus, but he managed to slip away. So, in Jerusalem, Jesus had a very mixed reaction from those who heard him. John 10, verses 20 and 21 said, Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So, you can see that the reactions were very mixed. But because of the opposition, Jesus had left Jerusalem and he had crossed over to the Jordan, actually returning to the place where John used to baptize. And he used this as a base. He was still continuing his ministry. People were flocking to him. And it says that many were believing in him. But he was out out of the reach of of the Pharisees and those who might want to harm him. So this is where we find Jesus at the beginning of, of today's lesson. And Jesus receives news. He gets the word that Lazarus is sick. Now, Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. And evidently, this family were very close friends of Jesus, and they lived in the village of Bethany. We're told of this family on other occasions. Uh, Luke tells us of a meal that Jesus took with them. John tells us about a second meal where Mary actually anoints Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. And then she washes those feet with her hair. And so we can see that they were very close to Jesus. It's kind of interesting that this is the first time that we hear of Lazarus. And yet Mary and Martha, when they send word to Jesus, they say, the one that you love is ill. And so we understand that when we get the Gospels... We're only getting part of the story. There are lots of things that did not get recorded. So uh, we need to keep that in mind sometimes as we look at these different episodes. Jesus had told some of those who wanted to be his disciples. He said, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have their holes. The Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. And so this family must have been especially close to him they provided a refuge for him, a place to visit where he knew he would be among friends. Now, when Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick, he makes an interesting response. He says, This sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, we know Lazarus died. So how could Jesus say it wouldn't end in death? But Jesus was correct. It didn't end in death. The death of Lazarus was only temporary. But you can imagine what the disciples thought. This wasn't how they probably interpreted it when they heard Jesus say, this will not end in death. A lot of times it comes as a shock to us when we realize we've misinterpreted, we've gotten things wrong. Now, the disciples were also told about the man born blind that his condition was for the glory of God. You remember they ask, Who sinned, this man or his parents? Why is he blind? And Jesus said, Neither one of them sinned. This is so that the work of God could be displayed. And it, it seems incredible to us that blindness and even death could be occasions where God shows his glory. Now, Jesus would be glorified through Lazarus' death in two ways. First, the people would see the power that Jesus had. This power would be displayed to call a dead person out of the grave, make this dead person live again. But the glory of Christ would also be displayed because this resurrection of Lazarus would be the precipitating event for Jesus' arrest and his trial and crucifixion. So Jesus' glory would be on display when the people saw the miracle and then again when he was on the cross. Now Jesus does something else that kind of surprises us. In fact, he does nothing. He waits for two days. And in a situation like this, two days can be a very long time. Now, the messenger that came to tell Jesus the news, he probably took a day to reach Jesus. Jesus then waits two days, and then he sets out for Bethany. It probably took a fourth day for Jesus to travel to Bethany. When he gets there, he finds out Lazarus has been dead for four days. So it seems that Lazarus must have died almost immediately after the messenger was sent. So this is important, because if Lazarus died soon after the messenger was sent, Mary and Martha probably had no real expectation that Jesus would get there in time. They probably knew that when Jesus arrived, it would already be too late. Now, why did Jesus wait two days? Well, there were several reasons. Uh, One was he probably wanted a definite delay between Lazarus' death and Lazarus' resurrection. But another reason is that Jesus was always careful to be in charge, in control of his own actions. He never wanted to allow others to set the timetable, uh, to set the agenda. He was under the Father's command, and he was careful to move and act only in accordance with the Father. You remember in John chapter 7, it was time for the festival of tabernacles. And Jesus' brothers told him you need to leave Galilee, go down to Jerusalem so that everyone can see what you're doing. And Jesus told them, no, he refused to go with them. After they went, the scripture tells us that Jesus went on his own. And so the idea that we get is Jesus was very careful to do everything in the timing of the father, acting only on the father's direction. But after two days, Jesus tells the disciples, We're going back to Judea. And this alarms the disciples. You know, uh, Bethany was just a short two miles or so from Jerusalem. So they remind Jesus it was just a little bit ago those people were trying to stone you. And now you want to go back. Now, many Jews from Jerusalem would be in Bethany with Mary and Martha And so it really would be almost impossible for Jesus to go back and not be noticed by those in Jerusalem. But Jesus tells them, he says, Lazarus is asleep. I need to go and wake him up. And the disciples don't understand. They think Jesus is talking about natural sleep. They probably anticipate that Lazarus is recovering. So Jesus has to tell them very plainly, Lazarus is dead. And again, this had to puzzle the disciples because Jesus had said this sickness will not end in death. But now Jesus tells them he's dead and something even more puzzling. Jesus says, for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Jesus wants them to understand he has the power over life and death. He's going to demonstrate this to the disciples by raising Lazarus. You know, a man who doesn't or a man who can raise the dead doesn't need to fear being killed. Jesus knows the disciples are going to need faith. Faith that Jesus has the power over death because they soon are going to face Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus had already told them. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. And now he's going to prove this authority to the disciples. And it's interesting that Thomas responds by saying, okay, let's go with him. We might as well die along with Jesus. And so Thomas shows some real courage here. He doesn't anticipate that things will be easy, but he's willing to go with Jesus and face whatever happens. Now, Jesus arrives in Bethany, to find Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. And this interval of four days was important. Many Jewish people had the belief that a person's soul could actually return to the body after death. The body could come to life again. And this coexisted with the idea that people could be buried alive. You know, medical knowledge was much less precise in those days. Sometimes it was difficult to determine if a person was truly dead. And the tradition was a body had to be buried within eight hours. And so sometimes people could have been buried before they were actually dead, without being dead. And there were documented cases of this. The only way to know if a person was dead or not was to wait until their bodies actually began to decay. And this is not that unusual. Uh, in our country, George Washington left instructions. He wanted his body left out for three days because he wanted to make sure he was dead before he was placed in the grave. And so Jesus deliberately waited because he wanted there to be a long enough period that when he brought Lazarus back, this wasn't just a case of the body, of the spirit returning to the body. This was a case of someone who very definitely was dead and yet was alive again. Now, in Jesus' time, the community was very much involved in the mourning process. Uh, According to Jewish law, if you were uh, walking along the way and you saw a funeral procession, you were obligated to join in. It was part of your responsibility as part of the community to mourn with your neighbors. And usually, this mourning period brought everything to a halt. You know, the body was usually buried within eight hours, but life didn't go back to normal. There were seven days after this, a very intense mourning. Uh, the mourners couldn't wash. They couldn't put on shoes. Uh, they couldn't conduct any kind of business. And then after these seven days, there was another 30 days of less intense mourning. So you can see this is the atmosphere, the situation Jesus would have found when he finally arrived at Bethany. And Bethany was close to Jerusalem. A number of Jews had come out of Jerusalem to comfort Mary, to comfort Martha during this time. So there was a crowd when Jesus arrived. Now, Martha hears that Jesus is there, and she immediately heads out to him. And this is kind of what we expect from Martha. We've learned that she is the sister who takes action. When Martha arrives to Jesus, she tells him, she says, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then she follows it up. But I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now, we need to understand what was Martha saying when she said, If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, you can take this in two ways. And it has been interpreted in different ways. Some see this as Martha blaming Jesus. You know, why weren't you here? But if you look back at how Lazarus had died so soon after the message had been sent, really, I don't think Martha expected Jesus to get back in time. To me, Martha is not saying, you know, it's because you weren't here. She's making more of a wishful, wistful statement. If only you could have been here, things would have worked out differently. But she follows this up by saying, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And again, it's hard to know what she means by this because she doesn't seem to anticipate that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus. When Jesus actually tells them, take the stone away, she says, you know, by now his body's decaying. By now he's stinking. And so it doesn't seem that she's anticipating a resurrection. So we don't know that she really understood what she meant. She doesn't ask Jesus for anything. She doesn't seem to have any expectations of him. But she seems almost instinctively to grasp that Jesus can and will do something here. And Jesus then speaks words to her of great comfort. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha understands this to mean when all of the dead are raised, at the general resurrection in the last days. And she says, well, I know he will rise again at the last days. And this really is something that is uh, fairly new to the Jewish people, the idea of the resurrection. In the Old Testament, even the saints of the Old Testament really had no firm belief in life after death. They believed that after death the soul went to Sheol, And this is not hell. It's not punishment as we think of hell. Instead, it was a place of nothingness where the soul lived kind of a shadowy, gray, joyless existence. Psalm 115 verse 17 says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any that go down into silence. Ecclesiastes 9.10 Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Now, by Jesus' time, many of them had begun to believe in a resurrection. But it is interesting to note that the Sadducees uh, very firmly did not believe in a resurrection. They rejected this idea. But Martha tells Jesus, I believe that he will be resurrected in the last days. And then Jesus makes one of his great I Am statements. In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven of these statements where he's explaining to the people who he is. He says, you know, I am the bread of life. Well, in this case, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now, it's obvious Jesus is not talking about physical death here. Everyone dies. Even Lazarus. Lazarus was raised again, but this was only a temporary reprieve. Eventually, Lazarus faced the grave a second time. But Jesus is referring to what Paul described as a mystery. Christ in us, the hope of glory. You know, Jesus was talking about the spiritual life that becomes ours. And Jesus then asked Martha, he says, Do you believe? And Martha shows great faith here. You know, she could not have known all of the implications or the meaning of exactly what Jesus meant when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. But she clearly believes in Jesus. She says, you are the Messiah, the son of God who's come into the world. And then Martha goes back to get Mary and she tells Mary, she says, the teacher is here. He's asking for you. And you can imagine what Mary thought when she heard these words. But it must have been a great comfort to know that Jesus had arrived and that Jesus was wanting to see her. And when she hears this, it says she goes quickly. And it's, it's as if she, she jumps up and runs away. And the crowd thinks that she's overcome by emotion and she's rushing to the tomb to grieve. But instead, she's going to find Jesus. Now, Mary and Martha are sisters. But like a lot of sisters, they're very different. You know, Mary's response is the opposite of Martha. They both begin by saying the same thing. When they get to Jesus, both of them say, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But Martha goes on to have a conversation with Jesus to discuss these things theologically, talking them out, so to speak. Mary can only fall at Jesus' feet and weep. There's no further conversation between her and Jesus. The, picture, the But the picture is just Mary at Jesus' feet, weeping almost unconsolably. You know, we come to Jesus in our own way in times like this. And Jesus responds to our needs individually. You know, Martha wanted answers. Mary wanted comforting. And so Jesus responded to each one of them in a way that would meet their need. And scripture tells us at this time, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And it it can be translated, he vehemently moved his spirit and troubled himself. So the idea is that Jesus is deliberately engaging in, in deep empathy, identifying with those there who were mourning. You know, all of Jesus' healings contained an element of sympathy where, where Jesus saw those who needed healing and took pity upon them, showed mercy to them. And in some real way, Jesus heals our infirmities by taking them upon himself. And we, we see the same idea of Jesus taking our burdens upon himself on the cross when at the end Jesus cries out, you know, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we get the the picture, the idea of Jesus taking away our estrangement, our isolation from God by taking it upon himself. Now, this could also be translated as Jesus chafed in spirit. The idea is that he had such a distress that his body trembled. In Greek, the idea is of a horse snorting. Uh, an involuntary groan or shudder that comes deep within Jesus from his heart. Now, this description of what Jesus is doing would have been very shocking to the Greeks that John is writing to because John had made it plain. Jesus was God. You know, it says in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So Jesus was God in person. And to the Greeks, the primary characteristic of God was that God was untouchable. God was unable to feel emotion. He wasn't influenced by emotion. Their argument was when we feel sorrow or joy, when someone causes us to feel sorrow or joy, then they have affected us. And for that brief moment, they have power over us, power to move us. Now, No one, obviously, can have power over God. So to the Greek mind, God must have no emotions whatsoever. But Jesus shows us here a very different picture of what the Father is like. And Jesus then asks the crowd, he says, where have you laid him? And when they answer, come and see. The Bible tells us Jesus wept. Now, he wasn't weeping for the same reasons they were weeping. You know, they believed they would never see Lazarus again. Jesus knew Lazarus was going to be raised. But I think Jesus was weeping here out out of deep emotional pain. You know, Jesus clearly identified with him. He felt the pain involved in their mourning. They had been going through this grief and shock for the past four days, you know, as their brother, as their friend was in the tomb. And they were going through this intense mourning. And so Jesus weeps along with them. When Jesus weeps, you know, we see the amazing truth that we can affect God himself, that God is affected by us. You know, Jesus was God. And yet Mary and Martha had this power to affect him, to cause him grief. And so really, it means Jesus was vulnerable Jesus was open to hurt because of his relationship with Mary and Martha. His love for them had opened himself up to heartache. So you think of what that means, that God loves us so much. God wants us to love him back so much that he gives us this free will. Even though this means that God makes himself vulnerable to us, God gives to us the power to hurt him, to cause him pain and sorrow and distress. But our freely chosen love was so important to God that he made this choice. Now, one of the neat things we see from Scripture is how Jesus responded very differently to Mary and to Martha here. You know, both of them have come to him with the same idea, if only you had been here. To Martha, Jesus responds with profound doctrinal truth. You know, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. To Mary, Jesus doesn't respond with words at all, but he weeps with Mary. When she collapses at his feet, he joins her in her sorrow. So when we come to Christ in our suffering, you know, sometimes he uses that to reveal great truths to us. And sometimes He shares our suffering with us. Now, when the crowd sees Jesus, they see that he's weeping. They note that he must have loved Lazarus very much. Others offer a criticism, though. They say, well, if he healed the blind man, couldn't he have done something to keep this man from dying? Now, uh, the crowd isn't necessarily being uh, malevolent here, maybe not even unbelieving. You know, when Jesus healed the blind man, uh, Jesus was doing something that they said no one has ever heard of before. Now, they saw Jesus was very sorrowful at the death of Lazarus. So clearly, Jesus had the will to save Lazarus. Jesus would have wanted to save Lazarus, but he must then have lacked the power, that is, to their thinking. You know, they had seen Jesus do amazing miracles, but somehow... They felt there must be some barrier in death, something that even Jesus couldn't conquer. And scripture tells us again, Jesus was deeply moved. Evidently, this time it was at the misunderstanding of the crowd, uh, how the crowd could not get past this idea of Jesus being the resurrection. You know, the whole point of the resurrection of Lazarus was to prove the authority of Jesus. When he said, I am the resurrection, he then went on to prove this. So Jesus is taken to the tomb. There's a large stone across the entrance. Jesus then gives the command to open the tomb, to to roll the stone away. Mary then objects. She says, you know, by this time there there has to be a bad odor. Uh, He's been in there four days And Mary may have thought that Jesus wanted to to view the body of Lazarus one last time. And I think she's kind of politely reminding Jesus, he doesn't want to see this. You know, this is a body that's in the process of decaying. But Jesus says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Now, I don't think he's meaning that this is dependent upon Mary's faith. I think Jesus intended all along to raise Lazarus. But I think when he says, if you believe, what he's saying this, this resurrection will show you the glory of God if you believe. But the unspoken inference is, if you don't believe, you won't see the glory of God. Now, we look at the results. In verse 45, it says, many of the Jews who were there, They believed in Jesus when they saw this, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. The Pharisees then, when they learn about this, make the decision, Jesus is going to die for the good of the country. So it shows us, you know, God can work in the most amazing ways and we can still refuse to see the glory of God displayed in those things that he does. These people had seen a dead man walk out of a tomb, and still they didn't see God's glory. Jesus then offers a prayer, but not not a prayer of petition. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. You know, he makes it plain that he's already been through this with the Father. He knows the Father is going to resurrect Lazarus. He's praying not to ask God, but to convince the crowd. Jesus knew that he was completely in the will of the Father. And therefore, because he was in the Father's will, he had every confidence that God would do exactly what Jesus was calling upon him to do. Jesus then calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the idea is this is extremely loud. The, the same word for loudness here is used to describe the, how the crowds uh, were yelling at the triumphant entry. And also it's, it's used when the crowds cry out, crucify him at Jesus' uh, trial. And so we get the idea, you know, this is not just a, some kind of, of quiet, gentle statement, but Jesus is proclaiming, you know, uh, at really, the, you know, the top of his voice, Lazarus, come out. And so it kind of reminds us of, of the cry of Jesus on the cross when he says it is finished. And then here comes the dead man. Lazarus comes out of the grave, still wrapped in his grave clothes. His hands and his feet are wrapped. There's a cloth around his face. And Jesus acts very kind of matter-of-factly telling them, go ahead, take the cloths off of him. Let him go. Can you imagine what was going through the minds of those who saw this? They see Jesus shout out this order to Lazarus. They're watching the dark opening of the tomb. Now you can imagine, you know, the bright sunlight outside, the darkness of the tomb. You can't see inside the tomb. But then all of a sudden, out of the gloom and the shadow of the tomb, here comes a man who clearly used to be a corpse. He's got all of the wrappings of death, but a man who's clearly alive now. You know, Jesus tells them, take off the wrappings of, of, of the grave. He doesn't need them anymore. He isn't dead anymore. He's ready to enter back into life. And so you kind of wonder who was the one who actually goes to Lazarus and unwraps those cloths, you know. And, you know, kind of what were they expecting? You remember, he's been in the grave now for four days. But they unwrap the cloths and they find under those They find Lazarus, you know, the one they've been mourning for this time. And so after this, we get a little bit of the results. It says many of those who came uh, to visit Mary and Martha to mourn with them, they now believed in Jesus. But some of them went and they told these things to the Pharisees. Really, you know, they were ratting Jesus out, they knew what the Pharisees or how the Pharisees felt about Jesus the enmity against Jesus. And so, you know, they were reporting Jesus to the Pharisees. Uh, They they clearly had no good intentions toward Jesus. The chief priests, the Pharisees, then respond by, by calling a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And they make the decision, for the good of the nation, Jesus must die. Now, at this point, they're not trying to investigate this. Really, in their minds, it didn't make any difference whether it was true or not. The people were believing in Jesus. They weren't going to believe in Jesus. And so they didn't need to find out the truth of the matter. You remember, they had already accused Jesus of being a sinner, of doing miracles through demonic power. Now, you have to ask yourself, had they really come to believe this? You know, it's one thing if they were being hypocritical And just accusing Jesus. But it would be even worse if they had actually begun to believe that Jesus was a demonic force. You know, we think, how could they have believed that? How could they have looked at Jesus and actually believed he was using the power of Satan? But in Romans, Paul describes the condition of the Roman people, the Gentiles. He says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. And because of this, their thoughts became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then in 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Those who are perishing are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion. And so really, it, it should be something that scares us that we can get to the point where we believe something so obviously untrue, so horribly untrue. And yet, because we're refusing to believe, we are blinding ourselves to the truth. Now, as we look at this, we, we need to ask ourselves, well, what can we learn from this? You know, we see that God ordains our suffering in order to manifest His glory. He does this because He loves us. And whether we see glory in His suffering, it depends upon how we respond to it. You know, first of all, we see suffering as part of God's plan. It's not an accident. It's ordained by God to demonstrate His glory. You know, John's Gospel has told us on both of these occasions, where Jesus meets the man born blind And when Jesus comes to uh, resurrect Lazarus, both cases, he says, these things are happening so that the glory of God might be displayed. Now, that's difficult for a lot of us uh, to believe, to understand. You know, in the United States, we are a, a spoiled country. We have a huge abundance of almost everything. You know, when you begin looking at statistics, We are 5% of the world's population. We consume 24% of the world's energy. 700 to 800 million people do not eat enough calories a day to sustain normal daily activities. Americans eat 815 billion calories of food every day, 200 billion more than we need. They estimate that the excess calories we eat every day could feed 80 million people. We throw out 200 tons of edible food each day. And so you get the idea. We have such an abundance. I think we've come to expect and accept this as the natural order. Somehow we expect this as our right, as what's due us, that God has given this to us. If we don't have everything that we want, everything that we expect, we think that something has gone wrong, you know, uh, if events don't meet our expectations. If we actually suffer, we see something going terribly wrong, you know. And so as Americans, this is kind of what we believe, whether we're Christian or not. We really seem to believe that God owes us, you know. We, we think we've entered into this kind of agreement that we do our part, you know, by going to church by avoiding the worst sins, by giving money, you know, uh, these kind of things. And in return, God is supposed to do his part. And that's mainly to make sure that our lives proceed smoothly. So we believe God has promised us this safe, prosperous, peaceful life. And so the idea then that God would deliberately provide suffering is something that, that really kind of shocks us. But this gives us our second point. When God allows us to suffer so that his glory might be made manifest, it's proof of God's love. John 11, verse 5 is an interesting scripture. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. It says Jesus stayed where he was, Because he loved them, he stayed and let Lazarus die. He stayed and let Mary and Martha go through four days of mourning and grief because he loved them. Now, this sounds incredible to us. You know, we think, how is this love? But, you know, we need to make sure we have a true definition of love. Love is not giving us what we want. Love is giving us what we need. And John Piper says it like this. He says, Jesus loves us by showing us himself. In other words, Jesus would not love us by sparing us suffering and death. Instead, he loves us by making himself known to us in ways that we could not have known him otherwise. Jesus is saying, ultimately, this is for the glory of God. So it's more loving To put Lazarus through death, to put the sisters through grief, because it allows them to see God's glory in a way they never would have otherwise. Now, we know this from experience as parents. It's often more loving to let kids suffer through an experience because we know that it will provide them with knowledge they wouldn't get in any other way. We know they're going to be better off. So when God's glory is made known through Christ, it's not only for our good, but it's also for the good of those who are looking on. You know, Lazarus' death affected Mary and Martha, but it also affected a number of other Jewish people. And so uh, God, through this act of love, was affecting not only Mary, Martha, Lazarus, but a whole number of people there. And when we see God manifest his glory through the suffering of Lazarus, the death of Lazarus, we know God is not requiring of us something that he does not go through himself. God suffered himself. You know, it's interesting. Jesus says Lazarus' death is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified. And over and over when Jesus talked about being glorified, what he meant was he would be crucified. You know, uh, in John 12, 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, talking about his crucifixion. Uh, in John 12, 16, only after Jesus was glorified did the disciples realize certain things about him, only after the cross. So, you know, Jesus, when Jesus says he's being glorified, he is referring directly to the cross. So when when God is being glorified here through Christ, the resurrection of Lazarus is pointing directly to the death of Jesus. So we have to remember, uh, you know, Lazarus wasn't the only one who suffered from this uh, death and resurrection. Jesus himself would suffer on the cross a little bit later. Now, we have to understand, you know, when Jesus died, it wasn't the, the Jewish leaders who put Jesus to death. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the crowds. You know, Jesus surrendered his life voluntarily. He gave up his life. Jesus went because he had surrendered his life to the Father. And so this was the glory of God that we see displayed here in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, before we go, we need to understand Suffering can put God's glory on full display, but whether we see that glory or not depends upon how we view it. You know, will we open our eyes to the glory of God? When Lazarus came out of that tomb, there were two very different reactions. Mary, Martha, many of the Jews believed, but many of them did not believe and instead went to the Pharisees. It's interesting that in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells the story of another Lazarus. This Lazarus is a beggar who lives at the gate of a rich man. And eventually they both die and go on to the afterlife. Lazarus goes to paradise with Abraham. The rich man goes to eternal torment. And once there, the rich man begs Abraham. He says, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers so they won't come to this place. And Abraham tells him, they have the prophets, you know, they have the law, they are already being warned. And the rich man says, but if someone from the dead goes back, they'll believe. And Abraham says something very um, true to us. He tells the rich man, he says, if they wouldn't believe the prophets, if they wouldn't believe the scripture, they're not going to believe it even if a dead man goes back and tells them. And we think of that and say, no, you know, if you saw a dead person come to tell you something, you would believe it. But in this case, we have literal proof of that. These people saw Lazarus come back from the dead and they still refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, in conclusion, as we face suffering or tragedy in our lives, there are two things that we should avoid doing. And there are two things that we should do. We need to avoid jumping to conclusions, winding up with misunderstandings like the disciples. You know, it's interesting when Jesus talks to them, they continually misunderstand. You know, Jesus said this sickness will not end in death. And they misunderstood that. Jesus tells them Lazarus is sleeping and they still didn't understand. Jesus tells them, let's go back to Judea. And they think that he's risking his life. You know, when we deal with suffering, we have to make sure that we have a correct view, a biblical view of suffering, that we don't have misunderstandings that shake our faith. Now, we also have to avoid having a a narrow or limited worldview of what uh, the ways that God works in our world. You know, when Jesus came to Bethany, Mary, Martha, and different ones of the Jewish people there— all of them said the same thing. If only you were here, you could have healed Lazarus. So they very clearly believed Jesus had the power to heal. But none of them could make that extra leap to the idea that Jesus could bring Lazarus back from the dead. Their worldview would not permit them you know, to have this leap to see what Jesus was really capable of. And so how many times does our worldview restrict what we feel like God can do. You know, we see God acting only in specific ways. And so we limit really what God does in our lives. It's interesting that when Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth, scripture tells us they refused to believe in Jesus. And because of this, he was unable to do many miracles there. So we can see how our lack of faith restricts what God wants to do in our lives. Now, there are some things that we need to do and we need to follow Martha and Mary's example. You know, when we come to Jesus, we need to follow Martha's example. She believed even though she did not understand, you know, Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. And there's no way that she understood all of this, but she believed it to be the truth. And then there's no way we're going to understand all of what Jesus tells to us. We're not going to understand what he's doing necessarily when suffering comes into our lives. But we have to have the faith of Martha and to believe. And then we also should respond as Mary responds. You know, Martha has this uh, discussion with Jesus. Mary doesn't discuss things. She just goes to Jesus and falls at his feet and weeps, you know, she comes to Jesus for comfort, wanting to be in his presence. She wasn't there necessarily seeking answers, wanting to know why she was seeking fellowship. And you know, when tragedy shatters our lives, uh, a lot of times our first tendency is, is to ask why, when really we just need to go to Jesus and allow him to comfort us, to share with us in our grief. You know, and so Our first instinct needs to be the same as Mary. When she heard Jesus was here and is asking for you, she immediately got up and went to Jesus. And that's what we need to do when we face suffering, when we face tragedy in our lives. We need to do this if we're going to be sure that God's glory is going to be made known through this suffering. And so as we go through this next week, we don't know what's going to come up in our lives. But we know that God uh, is there. We know that Jesus was speaking the truth when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, thank you for sharing this with us today. And I'm going to close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this scripture that we've read today. We thank you for your glory that we've seen displayed through this. And to think that your glory was shown way back then But it's being shown now through what happened to Lazarus. And we ask that you would help us uh, as we face difficulty and trial and suffering, that your glory would be on display in our lives, no matter what that might be. And we'll give you the praise in your name. Amen.